With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome to Tennis.com's podcast, Inside Tennis, with Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. I'm Nina, and I'm joined by my co-host, Irina. Hey, Irina. Hey, guys. Just checking in from San Jose, California. Beautiful day here, and uh, enjoying the nice dry weather instead of being completely drenched once you head out the door in Orlando. And also in Washington, D.C., which is where I am at the City Open, and it's going to be raining probably every day, nice tropical you know, summertime thunderstorms here. It's, it's really quite something to work with. In this episode, we've got a ton of topics to cover, um, not the rain, um, including the ins and outs of scheduling, what drug testing is like for players on tour, how stressful it is to obsess over the ranking, and on a lighter note, the many inspiring moms that are doing really well out there right now. We're going to start off with scheduling because this, this week I'm in Washington, D.C., and Irina's in San Jose, and we were almost in the same city together, but it didn't quite work out. Irina, let's talk a little bit about what went into you choosing what tournament to play in and how the entries kind of the entry list kind of work. As I said in the previous podcast, there is a website that all the players log into. It's called WTA Player Zone. And in there, you can find out all the information you need to sign up for tournaments and all the entry lists and all the tournament information is on there and so when i was signing up for these tournaments six weeks ago i had the choice to choose between san jose and dc because san jose was more money prize money involved i figured you know what if i'm going to be in the qualifying of an event might as well get paid a little bit more for it so that's why i chose san jose and it's kind of a crazy time in the schedule right now. So you're in the hard court in San Jose, the hard court's in D.C. But last week there was multiple events in Europe on clay. We just finished the grass court swing. It's kind of a bit of a chaotic time. Do you find it weird that there's a tournament scheduled in Moscow and China last week? Or is that just the way things work? It is the way things work. I am on the player council and we are constantly getting requests from different tournaments, whether or not they want to change venues, whether they want to change weeks. That is a big topic of conversation. And the moment we're actually talking of a specific Asian tournament that is being held and they want to change weeks, so it kind of mixes in with the Asian swing. So at the end of the day, all the Europeans are probably happy with the amount of tournaments that are still happening over there, especially the clay quarters. There's so many clay court events that are happening at the moment for people that still don't want to come over to the hard court swing and be in America for a whole, I think, month and a half, almost two months. Yeah, it's, it's good for Dominic Tian because he was thrilled to have more clay court tournaments, but I don't think anyone else uh, in the U.S. is happy about having to wake up at different hours of the day to figure out what's happening in Europe. Yeah, I will say I think it's great after, you know, people were very revved up for Wimbledon and watching that and to know that all those players that are coming from Wimbledon, I mean, even here I'm playing in San Jose, I'm sharing a gym with Serena Williams all time, great. 
I think it's great for the fans to be able to have the greatest of all time, you know, in their backyard in California. So many people are coming out to just watch her practice, and it's just fantastic. Being around Serena is always a good, always a good experience. It's fun to have her back playing, but also she's kind of been in the news lately because of the whole drug testing tweet. From my end, I don't think social media is the way to talk about these very serious and very confusing. There's so many layers to this drug testing stuff in tennis. And she sent out a tweet about it last week because she's been drug tested five times this year, while most players have been tested, you know, maybe once or twice. And she's at least twice more than any other top female this year. But then again, she's been gone for so long, she's on the comeback. So it's kind of confusing because her ranking doesn't really stipulate being tested that much. So her tweet was basically, you know, it's that time of day to get, quote, unquote, randomly drug tested and only test Serena. She said discrimination, I think so. But then she sent another tweet right after but I'm ready to do whatever it takes to have a clean sport, so bring it on. I'm excited. So she kind of, I don't know, I don't think it was a very clean tweet for what, well, that pun was not intended. Um, I don't think it was a very organized tweet, and I don't think Twitter is the place for this, but it opened up an interesting discussion about drug testing. And as a player, what's the drug testing process like? So there's a lot of players that have very, very negative opinions about the whole drug testing thing. But I'm one of those people, hey, if it's random and you're getting texted we're making sure that the sport is clean and you know if you're the best players the best players should be tested on a regular basis i think i mean if they're doing the best then we should test the best but you know a lot of people would disagree with me so be it but at the end of the day if it takes a little bit of time to go ahead and go to the restroom and pee in a cup and make sure that you're doing things the right way I think it's not a bad thing. I think that there's been a lot of uh, controversy, especially with the lawsuit that is being brought up by Madison Brangle. I don't know if there are many players aware of that or many fans aware of that. But, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of controversy in the whole doping department. If you're testing the best players in the sport, you're making sure that the, the sport stays clean. Well, with Madison Brangle, though, her issue was particularly the fact that she was getting her blood drawn and that caused an injury. Do you pee in the cup as often as you get the blood drawn, or is the blood drawn less often, or does it just is it really random? Well, I can only speak from my personal experience. I have gotten both. I tend to just pee in a cup more often, more times than not. Uh, there were a few players that actually got tested. Uh, it was both um, for urine and for blood. And uh, it was before a match, which was unheard of. So I think that there's definitely going to be some changes with policies and, you know, when to ask for players. But even today, there's a, there were two players today that got tested and they won their matches. And I always thought that you only get tested once you lose a match. They're definitely seeking out the players that they think should be tested. And so they go ahead and do that. Yeah, the, the statement I read was that it's targeted testing because random testing or weighted random testing does not assure that all the appropriate athletes are tested enough. So they've been they've been trying to adjust. This is in the past maybe eight, nine years, though. They've been trying to adjust and, and actually target players. So, I mean, I think it makes sense. Like, I think I think if you're doing better and you're winning a tournament and you're, you know, reaching the women's final after being gone for a year and a half, like, maybe it does make sense to be tested more. I don't think it's discrimination exactly. I think it's just targeted. What they're calling it targeted testing. The peeing in the cup is at least relatable on my end because in college I got tested once and I had to pee in a cup and it was it was exhausting. But I cannot imagine doing it all the time or getting my blood drawn all the time. Like, I feel like that's part of the sport. It's just the way it is, but that's tough. 
there are some players that definitely have it easier than others. For example, I can go straight from a match, and once I see the officer, you just know. You just know they have the little clipboard, they have a little hat on, and they're like, oh, Miss Falcone, and I'm ready to go. Almost 100% of the time, I will say, okay, you direct the way, I'm ready. Um, and then I'll be out of there within five minutes. But I have heard several girls tell me that they have actually taken hours and hours to actually go to the bathroom, which is, it just sucks for both parties. I remember I was speaking to one of the officers. I was like, you know, I'm making your job easier, easy for you because I'm just going to go straight in. Some of them, they actually have to make sure, they have to supervise your shower to make sure that you're not doing anything sketchy in there. Um, so, yeah, it, it's very invasive. It, it can be very invasive. But like you said, it's keeping the sport clean. Yeah, it sounds extremely invasive. But I think it must be hard for the younger players who just get on tour and all of a sudden someone's following them in the shower and watching them go to the bathroom. I feel like that'd be kind of a shock to the system. I mean, I was like 18, 19, and it was shocking. But at least you had friends and teammates and, in your case, peers you can relate to. And it just becomes, I guess, part of the job that you sign up for. So really, it's just the way it is. And, okay, so when it comes to being tested and stuff, has it changed your, the amount of testing depending on your ranking? So, like, when you're outside the top 100, is it kind of people pay less attention to you? Absolutely. I honestly can't even remember the last time I was tested. I think it was in Brisbane this year, and that was uh, almost eight months ago. So, yeah, it's been a while. And even after I won a few matches and over in Europe, nothing. But at the end of the day, I mean, I have no problem with them testing me, but I, I, I've been lucky, I guess. I guess it just depends on what, what the player's doing and how they're doing. So, I mean... It'll be interesting to see how the thing with Serena unfolds, if any rules change, because she certainly made other rules kind of change when it comes to, you know, like the maternity leave thing and getting seated and all that. So I think that she's capable of making changes in the WTA tour and, and tennis in general. But it's also cool to see that she's kind of been part of a trend of moms doing really mm -hmm. well on the tour right now. I mean, even a, a week ago, there was um, Andrea Mitu won a doubles title in Bucharest, and then uh, Mandy Manella reached her first ever final. And it was at the age of 32, and she had a kid last year. I mean, it's not just the famous faces. It's also, like, a lot of other players. And you see a ton of them, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's funny enough, we were talking about them a few days ago. Gail Brodsky. I grew up with her, and she has two kids. She's a mother of two, and she just won a title. And as you pointed out, she is now in the running, in the number one spot for the U.S. Open Wild Card Challenge. Yeah, I grew up playing with her as well. And, and I actually interviewed her for a story about playing tennis while you're still pregnant like obviously when it's safe and your doctor approves of it and you know how Serena managed to play during her pregnancy up until like I think even like her eighth month or something and Gail totally related to it crazy to watch her have a family two kids I believe she jumped to 330 or something obviously it's, it's a huge jump it, it's just so great for something that I really admired that Serena said after her loss to Kerber at Wimbledon she was like you know I'm doing this for all the moms out there but at the end of the day, it's, it's just for all the women out there that, you know, they thought they couldn't do it with a kid. And women are just exceeding everyone's expectations, especially after having a kid. You know, a lot of people say, you know, it's all downhill from there, but clearly not. 
even from my perspective, I love seeing um, mothers achieve something because you do kind of feel like once you start having kids that maybe your career is definitely going to be second. And in this case, it still is. Obviously, Serena and even Azarenka, I mean, their kids are the most important things to them, but they're still capable of performing at an elite level and, and doing their job. And it's, it's cool to see from someone who doesn't have kids and also, I'm sure, cool to see from someone who does have kids. Agreed. I haven't spoken to very many pregnant moms. I've spoken a little bit to to Tiana Maria about it and uh, just a few other girls like Katerina Bondarenko. And to be honest, it's it's quite fun to see the girls out there. Um, they both have little girls, and uh, Evgenia Rodina also has one. And the three of them all play together. They're pretty much growing up together on the tour. And it must be fun to see. Uh, it must be fun for the moms to also know that we're going to make sure that those girls are taken care of. Katerina has to go practice, and her husband also happens to be her coach. We know that Karina, her daughter, is going to be okay sitting in the lounge because we're going to take care of her because she's one of our own as well. Oh, that's awesome. It's like a little family on tour, like a big family on tour, really. Absolutely. We've all taken her under our wing. I love that. That's fun. I've seen a lot of the kids around at tournaments, and it's, it's really cool to see them as they get older, realizing what their parents do. And I remember interviewing Tommy Haas, and he, um, he was telling me, and he told everyone the same similar quotes, he was saying that he wanted to keep playing, even though he was hitting way into his 30s, keep playing because he wanted to, his daughter to understand what he does for a living and sit courtside and really, and, and really get to witness him playing at a good level. And I thought that was really cute and really endearing. Absolutely. That was the same thing that Novak was saying, that his son is old enough now he was able to actually realize what his dad did out there at Wimbledon this year I think it's part of I think it's a big part of the reason why a lot of them are playing so deep into their 30s but then from your perspective can you imagine playing in your 30s like you're 28 right now I'm 28 right now and to be honest the idea of having a child and traveling on the tour is very scary uh but like I said, if you have someone that is traveling with you full-time and helping you take care of that child, I think it's a little easier, especially if you have a uh, if you have the father that is willing to do that. But even then, it would just be another fun thing to do. I, I really I don't know how to answer that, to be honest. When I do have a kid and I'm still playing, then we can talk about it. I think it's really cool that a lot of players are playing so much longer, and obviously I want to see you continue to play longer. But, you know, right now we're going into towards the U.S. Open um, and you're ranked outside the top 100. So as a player who's ranked outside in that, there's a cusp kind of. you got to be around maybe like 105 or maybe like 9, depending on each slam, right? Uh, a certain ranking to get the main draw. Uh, typically, you'd like to be top 100. That's usually the case and you're going to be in the main draw. Because with the amount of girls that are using the special rankings, there's a girl, for example, who's 102 and she's still not in the main draw. Um, and typically, it's 104 direct acceptance that get into the main draw. But with the amount of the ladies that are using their protected rankings, it's kind of tilting things a little bit. And how do they take a ranking from like six weeks be- before the U.S. Open, or how how much time is there before? Like, so right now your ranking is set. What you already applied for the you already entered the U.S. Open, so that's your ranking. No matter what you do in the next few weeks, or does what you do now matter? What I do now does matter, just because. If I go and accrue the most number of points, I can still get a wild card and come in and get a wild card that way. But uh, for the main draw of the U.S. Open, so this is how it works on player zone. You have to sign up for U.S. Open. They take the ranking six weeks from the tournament for main draw. If you want to play the U.S. Open qualifying, they take the ranking four weeks from the 
tournament starting date. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I feel like I should definitely know that, but maybe people listening won't know that, so that's that's good to know. <laughs> Ranking is kind of the whole point of tennis. It makes the world go around. Ranking is, you know, what's at stake each week is what affects how much your ranking affects, how much money you make, which affects your comfort of living and your traveling, which affects who you can hire to be in your team, how many people can travel with you, your physical therapist, your your fitness trainer, you know, all, all of this is all based on ranking points. So results are kind of everything. But obsessing over it, it can also be a little unhealthy in that, you know, you're looking at your ranking points every day and, you know, panicking over what you've got to defend. And, and how stressful is that? Do you kind of get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm not going to worry about this and just play the best I can and not, and not stress out? It's easy to say that I don't look at it. And it's easy to say after almost nine years on the tour that I would just be like, hey, you know, so lovey, it happens. Whatever happens, happens. But uh, just earlier this week i know that i have about 150 points to defend um defending a title from last year in tampico mexico and i went ahead to see what my ranking would up to in case i do not win another match for the rest of the year but that is just in the back of my head just to know like hey am i still going to be in qualifying of australia yes i will um then i have you know another example sasha vickery she told me she said i stopped looking at my rank here what my ranking is and to be honest it's the best i've ever done just because i don't focus on it and then you have other players that are looking at every other person's ranking points and who's going to drop and who's going to gain some points you know so it just depends whether or not you can handle it or not it seems like a lot of stress you know i i'm, I'm grateful that that what i do i don't have to worry about ranking points and nothing is dropping from me week in and week out i feel like it's just a really scary i mean it's it's just the way the sport works it's just a system that it is but i, I think it's scary really challenging to think about the numbers every single match you play i mean that's just insane. and not only that but you're thinking about prize money as well but what's more important you know getting the ranking points you, you think about money at all when you're on the court hmm that's a good question. I mean, I usually try, I, what I used to do with my old coach, he used to actually tell me how much I was playing for that day, which can either mess you up or can really fire you up. So for me, for example, I know that main draw of US Open, it's 54G, is just losing first round. So that fires me up to know that that's there if I go and compete really hard and I play well. So yeah, I think that it just depends how you take it. There's some girls, for example, I remember speaking to one girl earlier this year where we were out shopping and uh, I, I wanted to buy so many things in the store, so many things. And she said, oh, okay. And she starts looking with me and she's like, oh, this is cute. This is cute. But no, I can't afford it. And I was like, of course you can. Like, you know, if you go ahead and put your mind to it, it makes you want to play better on the court. She's like, no, that's not the way I roll, you know, so everybody's just different. You know, I was trying to convince her that if you want something, you should go get it. And just like most things in life. Uh, but some people are really, really antsy about that. Some people don't want to discuss how much they're making, don't want to discuss, don't even want to look at the draw sheet because they don't want to know how much they're making. So it just depends what, what you want. Oh, yeah. And then I remember at some point in your career, you also wouldn't look at the draw sheet you wouldn't look at who you were playing and if someone told you who you were playing you were like oh I didn't know like do something you still do and, and what was what was the mind games with that I still do that so thanks for bringing that up I actually uh I usually wait until the schedule of play comes out and I see who I play but a lot of the reasoning behind it is because one I don't like to see ahead for example I, I just want to focus on the match at hand a lot of players go and see 
who they would play if they win um, in the second round and the quarters and the semis. So a lot of people get so caught up in that. I'd rather just focus on that match, that moment, and just take care of business on that day. And then even uh, after I'm done with the match, my uh, my coach will sometimes tell me, do you want to know who you play tomorrow? And I'm like, no, let me enjoy this win for a little bit longer, and then we can discuss what we're going to do for tomorrow's match. That makes sense to me because when I see players on tour and we interview them, we interview them all the time, before matches, after matches, before tournaments, I mean, it's constant. And one of the biggest things I've noticed is that they don't really get to enjoy their victories. Get a big win, they're already thinking about the next match, they're already thinking about the next step. If they win the tournament, even if it's a Grand Slam, even if it's the U.S. Open, they're already thinking about, oh, i got to win this many points to get into this tournament next. I want to be the WTA Finals. I want to win the Australian Open. I want to be number one. I want to be number five. It's just constant. There's never really a chance to enjoy it unless you pull a Flavia Panetta and retire after you win the U.S. Open. It seems like no matter what, there'll always be another obstacle. And, and in D.C., Caroline Wozniacki was saying, you know, I was asking her if she's still hungry for more after achieving the Australian Open, after getting them back to number one, after kind of proving herself. And she said, absolutely, there's no point of me being here if I'm not still interested in, in chasing more and winning more and, and staying hungry and motivated. There's no point of me playing at all. It is relentless, and I mean, I mean, I'm, I promise you, I'm not throwing shade at you. But at the end of the day, if you do go to a press conference, it's not like, "Hey, are you enjoying your victory?" and "Let's just enjoy it." It's, it's like, "Oh, so you play this person next? How do you feel about it?" So at the end of the day, it's a, it's a catch twenty two because you do want to enjoy your victory, but at the end of the day, you have a match you have to worry about that's coming sometimes less than twenty four hours. Yeah, I mean, definitely not the press rooms aren't the most the most uh, naturally relaxing places to have conversations for heart to heart with players. Um, I'll admit that. So it's, that's a, that's actually a good point because I feel like it's really awkward sometimes in these conferences and people are asking the same questions over and over. Like, how did you play today? What do you think about your next opponent? You know, it's kind of a, a, a repeating cycle. But it's it's always nice to to hear something genuine. And I thought she was being genuine about just being like, oh, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't still hungry and motivated. Someone that is just spectacular with that whole motivation thing is just Venus. You know, I was in the locker room yesterday, and uh, she was just asking me about how I'm doing and stuff like that. And she looked at me, and she's like, you know, how's it going? And I looked at her, and I was like, you know, some days are tougher than others. And she asked me what I was going through, and she was so genuine and, like, wondering what uh, what was happening in my life. And it was so funny because I, I totally wanted to ask her, like, girl, what is it that just keeps you coming back? I need to know. Uh, because a lot of players, you know, they have different reasons as to why they wake up every morning and go practice seven hours a day. So, yeah, everybody has different motivation, and that's that's someone that you if, you, if you want to talk about longevity, that is someone you want to talk to on the women's side, including Serena as well, and on the men's side, I mean, look at Fed. He's just like fine wine. He's just getting better. Yeah, their sorts of motivation is is seemingly the elixir of youth because they're going deep into their 30s and they don't seem to be slowing down at all. I mean, Venus has obviously won a bunch of Grand Slams and Sloan in D.C. was also talking about how she feels the pressure differently right now and she feels, you know, still feels as motivated. But each day is like, go out there and do my best. Like, very, very simple. It's It's very, you know, repetitive but very simple, I think. I agree. That's the only thing that you can expect out of yourself is just going out there and performing at your best. Must be nice to have Venus ask you how your day is going. It was nice. Uh, she's a fellow Palm Beach uh, resident, just like I used to be. So she was wondering about if I. She was wondering if I was leaving Jupiter, and I was like, I don't think my parents are ever going to leave. But uh, yeah, she was awesome. 
And I hope everyone has found this podcast to be awesome because we're going to have to close with that. Um, thanks for joining us on the Inside Tennis Podcast. I'm Nina Pantic, and I've been with Irina Falcone. Thanks for listening, you guys. And if you guys want to keep listening to us again and again, we'll be back next week. And you can subscribe um, wherever you find your podcasts on iTunes. And we're also on SoundCloud. And you can follow us. There's the at Tennis Twitter account. And then we have Irina, who's at Irina Falcone. And I'm at Nina Pantic one You can comment. You can subscribe. You can leave reviews. And we'd love feedback. And we're hopefully going to have some guests in the future, ideally around the U.S. Open, people that we can also talk to and, and share all the stories. Thanks for listening, you guys. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.